Hello, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. I am Jennifer Roach. Today, we are going to talk about the great apostasy. As you know, we are going through the Come Follow Me readings, looking at some of the verses where questions might come up for your evangelical friends or family members, um, where they have questions about us, maybe we have questions about them, trying to help you, Latter-day Saint friends, um, understand where they're coming from so that maybe you can explain some things from your faith to them to, in a way where they can understand you. So our jumping off point today is 2 Thessalonians um, 2, 1 through 4. I don't normally read you four verses, but I want to read this whole section because it um, it's important. So this is out of the English Standard Version. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's a lot, right? Paul can pack in some concepts there. If you have ever had a conversation with someone unfamiliar with what we, Latter-day Saints, mean by the great apostasy, you are probably familiar with the look on their face. Because <laughs> it's a little bit like, I don't understand what you're saying. We're using the same word differently. Clearly, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and I imagine, Latter-day Saint friends, that's probably pretty confusing to you. Because the signs of the great apostasy, the, the clear explanation about it seems so obvious that it doesn't even need proving. Might as well ask someone to prove that, that there's air to breathe, right? Like, it seems so obvious to us. But for evangelicals, it's different. And I want to explain to you why. First, they do not deny the apostasy with a lowercase a. They actually don't deny a great apostasy either, but we will get there. We're going to start with little apostasy and then get to big apostasy. Um, the lowercase a apostasy has happened many, many times in history, and evangelicals could easily and clearly admit that. You see it in the Bible. You see it in every generation. Um, however, evangelicals will almost always couch it in terms of being an individual's apostasy not a collective thing that happens to all of humanity together. It's one person and their um, belief that gets interrupted. They, they start to believe wrong things. So when they talk about apostasy, most of the time, that's what they're talking about. Um, I am an apostate to them, right? I'm a, I'm a lower lowercase a apostate because I don't believe what they believe anymore. Um, the... The difficulty here is that it forces the conversation into this kind of awkward corner because your natural response to, to if you're talking about apostasy and they say, no, no, apostasy is like for individuals, individuals who go wrong. And you would say, oh, no, it wasn't just one person. It was, it was the whole thing. It's this great apostasy, everybody, everywhere. 
And now you've kind of got yourself a problem. Um, it, because it isn't the whole thing, right? You've just conflated two different ideas about what apostasy is. And now you guys are talking right past each other. So what does complete apostasy mean? And what doesn't it mean? Well, it cannot mean that there were no people who loved God and had a desire to serve him, that they patterned their lives after Jesus Christ. We know from history that this is not true, that that has never been true in any generation, that there were literally zero people who wanted to follow God. So that is not what great apostasy could possibly mean. So evangelicals have a rough little piece of logic to work through here. And sometimes we, Latter-day Saints, make it harder on them because we kind of overplay our hand a little bit. The evangelical who knows even the basics of history can point out plenty of people as examples of faithful believers throughout the ages. And by even pointing out one counterexample, it, in their minds, at least discredits the claim, right? Oh, there's this character from the Middle Ages, and she really loved God, and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. There couldn't have been an apostasy. Look, here's an example of a person who wasn't apostate. The claim that the great apostasy um, is not that no one, it's not that no one loved or followed God to the best of their ability, doing the best they could with what they had. That is not what we're saying when we say there was an apostasy. What the great apostasy means is the priesthood power was taken from the earth. Those are two very different things. Very, very, very different things. Evangelicals do not care one bit about priesthood. It is not a category for them. It is not a way in which they think. Um, it's the idea that there could be an institutional crisis because there is no more priesthood on the earth, that is not something that would even come into their minds or that they would even ever consider. All that to say, when you're in a conversation with an evangelical about the apostasy, try to stay out of the trap of, well, the apostasy means every single person uh, didn't love Jesus at all. Like that just, it's a dead end. It's not going to lead you anywhere. Second issue, evangelicals, absolutely believe in a great apostasy, 100%. But like many times we have talked about this here, they are not talking about the same thing that we are. They would define the great apostasy as something that will happen at some future point in time, presumably immediately before Christ comes back. So let me give you a couple quotes that kind of show where their thinking is on this. G.K. Beale He's an evangelical Bible scholar. He says it this way. The point Paul appears to be making is that the visible church community within which the true saints exist will become so apostate that it will be do dominantly filled with people who profess to be Christian, but really are not. The, the church will continue to profess to be Christian but most in it will actually not be true believers. Because I mean, we are talking apostasy there, right? And he is an evangelical Bible scholar. He 100% believes in the great apostasy. He just thinks it hasn't happened yet. We are headed towards that, not we are coming out of that. Here's another quote. Um, Dr. B.J. Oropisa, 
Um, he's an evangelical. He's a professor at Azusa Pacific. Um, he has written three volumes, 800 pages on apostasy. Every single one of those pages deals with the apostasy of the individual, not of the removal of priesthood power. So they they do go these both directions, right? Like here we see one of them, a great apostasy is coming, but there also is this really, really heavy weight on, no, 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 no it's individual. So we're on the same page that there is such a thing as an apostasy. They just think it's a future event while we believe it's a past event. But this nuance, it, it brings up an interesting layer because some of where you're going to get pushback from an evangelical is on the concept of apostasy as we define it. They would say, God wouldn't do that to us humans, bring Jesus Christ and then make the church disappear. It's nonsensical. That would be a very common evangelical response. Why would, you, why would God send Jesus and let the whole thing fall apart? Well, interestingly enough, um, they are perfectly okay with the with believing that apostasy is a possibility, a future possibility, but a possibility nevertheless. The only difference between their thinking on this and ours is that they think it hasn't happened yet. And we're saying, no, that has already happened. Um, in this second, second Thessalonians passage, we get Paul, uh, I don't think he knew what he was saying. He didn't foresee the evangelicals taking this in a weird way. But we get Paul warning the reader, do not let anyone deceive you, which is a very good and helpful thing for him to be saying. We should all be listening to that, right? Please do not let people deceive you. But it sets up the evangelical way of thinking that apostasy is an individual matter. The person who becomes apostate has been tricked or fooled out of proper belief. And it is their responsibility alone to kind of right their ship. Apostasy happened to individuals and it must be fixed by individuals. That's the only version of the apostasy that they really understand what to do with. Yes, there is this future great apostasy for them. It hasn't happened yet. They have nothing to do with it. So they're always gonna flip back to, if it's happened, it's just it just happens to people. People get off track in their beliefs. They need to get themselves back on track. The closest they can probably get to apostasy being the removal of priesthood power is looking at the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. If they know much about history, they can probably point to, to that time period as like, here is where the entire Christianity project has gotten off the rails. But evangelicals and Catholics have a very uneasy relationship. There is a lot of tension there. And it, a pretty typical response would be something like, well, those are Catholics. The implied, usually unsaid message there is they aren't real Christians like us, right? So it, it went off the rails with them, but that doesn't have anything to do with us, which is an interesting way to think about how truth is handed down through the generations, but that's where they're at. So what do you do with all this? <laughs> they see apostasy as an individual matter or a future matter. And while we certainly can see it as individuals in our church might get called apostate, 
Um, when we use the term great apostasy, what we mean is it has to do with priesthood power, not individual behavior. They think uh, great apostasy might happen in the future, probably will happen in the future, but not yet. So are we just like, at a stalemate? I don't think so. I think there's there's a couple different ways where you might get traction talking about this. It gets kind of tricky because they tend to see the concept of priesthood as a burden, not a gift. They, they think it's an unnecessary barrier between an individual and God. And, and you can see why. All they know is the image of false priests who oppress, right? Like the, priesthood is not a good word for them. They don't, they don't have any category where it is good. Their only category might be Catholic priests. And then they point back to the need for the Reformation of like, well, that's why it went, went off all the rails. Priests equal bad. So one path you could go down is talking about how having priesthood power restored has actually helped you get closer to God, not further away. They think it's a burden. They think it's a barrier. They think it's a speed bump. They think it's an unnecessary hoop that you would have to jump through somehow. They don't have any conceptualization that, that priesthood power might bring you closer to God. So you could get traction um, talking about it this way. I've had that experience in my life that the entire bring being brought closer to Jesus Christ because of priesthood power. I'm sure that you have had that experience too. That's a, a decent way to go. Another way to talk about this, honestly, is just for a minute, think about apostasy as they do. Accept their definition just for the moment that apostasy primarily has to do with the individual holding an incorrect belief it, and, and priesthood power is not part of the equation, right? Just pretend for a minute that's the definition of apostasy. It only happens to hum, to individuals, not all humans together. Well, how does someone come to understand that they hold an incorrect belief? Your, your evangelical friends hold incorrect beliefs. I did when I was an evangelical. But most good people who hold wrong beliefs they really have no idea that they're wrong. They're not trying to be wrong. They're not trying to be bad. They're believing what they've been taught. Um, they have nothing else to go on that might even suggest to them that things are off here. Some very simple questions that would revolve around kind of epistemology, the um, like the theory of knowledge. How do you know what you know? That's what epistemology is. And that line of thinking would come in really handy here. How do they know what they know? How do they know they're not wrong? How do they know they're not holding an incorrect belief? If you know and love evangelicals, you probably already know where this bit goes. They point to the Bible as their one source of belief. And I trust them when they say that. They, they believe it when they say it, that their belief is primarily coming from the Bible. But here's the thing. The Bible does not lay flat, not even for them. What does that mean? It means some passages are given more emphasis and more importance than others. That they know some passages better than they know others. Um, and that's true in a way that kind of can make people a little bit 
blind to certain passages. They can quote and believe the ones that they like and ignore plenty of other verses that add in more information, that add in some nuance, that add in some layers, um, that sort of fill the picture out because the Bible doesn't lay flat. It, it, they put greater weight on different parts of it. Um, the solution here, you are not going to like it. You need to know the Bible better than you do. Latter-day Saint friends, I love you. You do not know the Bible nearly well enough. I teach gospel doctrines. It is only October. I can already feel the size of relief that people have about getting out of our second year studying the Bible and just get to the good stuff in the Book of Mormon. And I am excited for that too. But as a people, we don't know the Bible very well. So conversations with folks who are basing literally everything off the Bible are difficult because even though they kind of have their their favorite verses, they know way more than you do and they can still outwit you. I know you're antsy to get to Book of Mormon year and I am too, but I implore you, if you have a missionary heart towards evangelicals at all, please do not run out of energy on the New Testament just yet. We have 10 weeks left. Um, one of the best things that you could do for the evangelicals you care about is learn the Bible better. Um, there are truths that are not in the Bible. Of course they are. They're in the Book of Mormon. They're in Doctrine and Covenants. We're about to get all, of, we're about to get there. And we're all so excited. Um, but if you know the Bible better, when somebody says, no, no, here's this verse that disproves what you're saying, you might have four, five, seven, nine, 29 other verses that add some layers and some context to it. Um, it just is what it is. The Bible is a huge book and it's confusing and it's all the things. And as a people, we absolutely need to know it better than we do. <laughs> all right, there it is. Um, next week, we pick up with the wonderful phrase, husband of one wife. And we're gonna talk about polygamy and how freaked out evangelicals get about that, about our history with polygamy. They don't seem to get freaked about it in the Old Testament. So that's weird. Like what in the world is going on here? Um, it was super fun. It's a great topic. I will see you then. Bye.